Chapter 4 Judges Power Hungry from the Beginning Guess what? The concept of state sovereignty, so dear to the delegates at the Philadelphia Convention, was effectively dismissed by judges only six years later. The omnipotence of today's Supreme Court would have surprised and horrified the founders, even the Federalists. At least two states considered secession because of the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. What does the Constitution say about the courts? Not much. In describing the federal judiciary, Article 3 of the Constitution says, The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one supreme court, and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. Article 3 also lists several types of jurisdiction that Congress may choose to grant to inferior federal courts, and describes the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction. In addition, it grants federal judges good behavior tenure. In the Judiciary Act of 1789, the First Federal Congress established the three-tiered federal court system, with a Supreme Court at its apex, intermediate appellate courts, and federal district courts to conduct trials, with which Americans have had to contend ever since. This system violated James Madison's pledge during the ratification debates that the federal government would first try to get along without any federal trial courts, leaving trials of federal issues entirely to the state courts. But it proved uncontroversial in the First Congress, which was dominated by Federalists of various stripes. Virginia's two senators were alone in that body in having opposed ratification of the unamended Constitution. Besides giving the federal judiciary a skeleton, the Judiciary Act included two other sections ultimately destined for great significance. In Section 25, the Act said that questions of federal law, including constitutional law, could be appealed from state Supreme Court to the federal Supreme Court. The constitutionality of this provision, dubious then as now, would be hotly debated within a generation, and it would be controversial repeatedly in American history. The Judiciary Act had another important provision. It concerned suits where federal courts were involved as neutral arbiters because the plaintiffs hailed from different states. Congress decided that the law of the state where the federal court sat would be the governing law. The congressmen wanted to prevent federal courts from devising a federal common law. The presumption was that state law should be applicable in everyday disputes. The creators of the federal government once again erred on the side of federalism, leaving matters to state governments rather than transferring decision-making authority to the federal government. Judging the Judges President George Washington considered three criteria in appointing the first men to the Supreme Court. Prospective appointees must be eminent in their states, they must have favored ratification of the Constitution, and they must, taken together, be of diverse geographic backgrounds. He had a chief justiceship and five associate justiceships to staff, and he made good on his intention to fill them with able Federalists. The first Chief Justice, John Jay of New York, was a surprising choice for that post, even to Washington himself. According to Jay family lore, Washington offered Jay any position he wanted in the new government. Washington wanted and expected Jay to take the senior cabinet position, Secretary of State. Instead, Jay chose the top judicial appointment. As in New York during the Revolution, when he had opted for the top judicial post rather than the governorship, Jay believed that his judicial experience fitted that job uniquely well. As the chief negotiator of the Treaty of Paris, a former president of Congress, where he achieved such influence that a leading historian of the period, John Kaminsky, recently called him a prime minister in that post, the chief author of his state's first Republican constitution, and a co-author of The Federalist, Jay was a fine choice for chief justice. 
Jay's associates on the High Court also brought outstanding qualifications as statesmen of a kind not seen in Supreme Court appointees today. Justices John Rutledge, James Iredell, William Cushing, and James Wilson had played eminent roles in writing the Constitution, ratifying it, or both. They were joined by John Blair of Virginia, who had experience in that state's high courts and in the Philadelphia Convention, and later replacements included William Patterson and Oliver Ellsworth, who had first been prominent in the Philadelphia Convention and then cooperated in writing the Judiciary Act of 1789. What a Patriot Said A Bill of Rights is what the people are entitled to against every government. Thomas Jefferson The Court's First Steps The first significant constitutional case decided by the Supreme Court concerned the extent of federal power. In Ware v. Hilton, 1796, the Court upheld the terms of the Treaty of Paris, which had ended the Revolutionary War. Thanks to John Jay's brilliant diplomacy, the Treaty of Paris had brought the Revolution to a spectacularly successful conclusion, with the United States gaining a western boundary not at the Appalachians, the boundary of American settlement at the time, but at the Mississippi. Borders, however, weren't at issue in the case. The issue was how to handle debts owed to the British. Specifically at issue was a Virginia law of 1777, intended to prevent British creditors from collecting on Virginia debtors. As was his custom, the Virginian's attorney, John Marshall, had no compunction in taking a case even though he had a substantial personal interest in the outcome, in this case, an interest adverse to his clients. He was an investor in Virginia lands formerly owned by prominent loyalists. Marshall argued that Virginia had acquired the status of an independent nation during the war, that independent nations had the right to confiscate enemies' property, and that Virginia had thus been perfectly within its rights to bar recovery of the debts in question. So far as the law was concerned, the defendant owed nothing to the plaintiff at the time of the Treaty of Paris in 1783. The Supreme Court disagreed. Justice Samuel Chase held that the Supremacy Clause of Article 6, which says that the federal government's treaties are the supreme law of the land, resuscitated the debt at issue. Another 1796 case, Hilton v. the United States, concerned the constitutionality of a federal carriage tax. The Constitution provided that direct taxes, taxes levied directly on the consumer or owner, in contrast to indirect taxes, like tariffs, which are imposed on the importer, must be apportioned equally among the states. Carriages were far more common in some states, notably Virginia, where many Tidewater planters owned carriages, than in others, particularly in Connecticut, where only two carriages fell under the tax. The Supreme Court held that the carriage tax was not a direct tax, and that it therefore did not have to be apportioned equally among the states, and that it thus was constitutional. In Ware v. Hilton, the Court had nullified a state statute. In Hilton v. United States, it refrained from nullifying a federal statute, but in the process gave Congress greater discretion in levying taxes than the ratifiers had intended. The limits on the Court's power to review statutes for constitutionality were at issue in the 1798 case of Calder v. Bull. The specifics of the case are not so important. It involved whether the Connecticut legislature could grant a new hearing in a probate proceeding enforcing a will. But the opinions written by Justices Samuel Chase and James Iredell are of great interest. In those early days at the Supreme Court, Justices customarily delivered opinions seriatim, that is, each for himself, rather than joining in a common decision. Here, Chase's statement about natural law, and thus about the limitations on legislative power, drew a stinging rebuke from Iredell. Chase began by saying that while the federal government's powers were strictly defined, the state governments retained all the power delegated to them by the people and not denied by the federal constitution. 
A former Republican turned Federalist, he then went further. State legislatures, he wrote, were not, as Parliament was under the British conception of sovereignty, absolute and without control, even when the constitution of the state did not expressly limit their authority. Rather, he said, there are certain vital principles in our free republican governments which will determine and overrule an apparent and flagrant abuse of legislative power, as to authorize manifest injustice by positive law, or to take away that security for personal liberty or private property for the protection whereof government was established. An act of the legislature, for I cannot call it a law, contrary to the great first principles of the social compact, cannot be considered a rightful exercise of legislative authority. In other words, according to Chase, state statutes that violated the principles of free republican government were not law at all. Such statutes, he wrote, were against the general principles of law and reason. Chase's opinion thus set the stage for federal judges to substitute their individual understandings of the principles of free republican government for the judgments of state legislatures. The legislature might legislate, Chase said, but not all its statutes could qualify as law. This has become, over time, the majority opinion of the Supreme Court. But Justice Iredell leveled a blistering response to Chase's advocacy of judicial imperialism. The guard against untrammeled legislative power, Iredell insisted, was not natural law, but the system of written state and federal constitutions. If any act of Congress or of the legislature of a state violates constitutional provisions, it is unquestionably void, though I admit that as the authority to declare it void is of a delicate and awful nature, the court will never resort to that authority, but in a clear and urgent case. If Congress or a state legislature should pass a statute consistent with the power it had been granted, Iredell continued, no court may declare it void, that is, strike it down as unconstitutional, merely because it is, in their judgment, contrary to the principles of natural justice. Iredell warned, The ideas of natural justice are regulated by no fixed standard. The ablest and purest men have differed upon the subject. And if legislative power can be abused... Such is the tendency of every human institution, but the American system offers a constitutional corrective, legislative elections. Hamilton splits the difference. According to Alexander Hamilton, there is a difference between necessary and absolutely necessary. This is a very important point, really. The Eleventh Amendment, Protecting the States from the Supreme Court Surely the most controversial Supreme Court decision of the 1790s was in the 1793 case of Chisholm v. Georgia. In this case, the court claimed jurisdiction over a sovereign state in apparent violation of Article Three of the Constitution. The case involved a claim that Georgia owed money to the estate of a dead South Carolinian for supplies provided during the Revolutionary War. Georgia refused to submit to the federal court adjudicating the case, insisting through its counsel, who refused to say anything more, that it enjoyed sovereign immunity as a state. It could not be sued without consenting to be sued. The Supreme Court issued a default judgment against Georgia because it had failed to appear. In their opinions, Chief Justice John Jay and Justice James Wilson denied that Georgia was sovereign in its relations with the Union. The United States Constitution, they held, was the creation of one American people. Justice Iredell, however, denied that the federal court had jurisdiction over the case at all. Georgia did not allow such suits in its own courts, and that meant that federal courts had no authority to hear such a case. Justice John Blair countered that when the states ratified the Constitution, they agreed to be amenable to such suits in federal courts. 
and Justice William Cushing affirmed that in giving the federal courts jurisdiction over suits between states, the Constitution assumed that states might be defendants in federal courts. Justice Wilson went further. He mocked the haughty notions of state independence, state sovereignty, and state supremacy. The American people, he said, could subject the states to federal jurisdiction if they chose to do so. The language of the Constitution's preamble referred to the desires to establish justice and to ensure domestic tranquility, which gave federal courts power to resolve such disputes. Jay's opinion offered what one historian has called a bit of hand-tailored history, which made Jay responsible for the lamentable standards of American judicial historiography. Jay said that when the Crown's authority ceased in America, thirteen sovereignties succeeded, but that the Americans thought of themselves in a national point of view as one people. The preamble to the Constitution showed that it represented the sovereignty of a single people. If one citizen might sue all the shareholders of a corporation, and if one state might sue another, why would an individual suit against a state be any different? The grant of jurisdiction under consideration, said Jay, should be construed liberally, because it was remedial. Such a reading, he concluded, would be both wise and useful. It would not, however, be what the Federalists had argued when the Constitution was being debated. They had said then that Federal courts could hear such suits only when they were initiated by the states. Alexander Hamilton, in fact, had said that suits against states would prove impractical because of the difficulty of executing judgments against them. Leading Federalist spokesmen like Edmund Randolph had said that the Federal Court's jurisdiction would be read narrowly. Virginia had refused to submit to a suit when summoned to do so in 1792 in the case of Grayson et al. v. Virginia. Massachusetts soon joined Virginia and Georgia on the list of affected states. In response, Congress proposed and the states instantly ratified the 11th Amendment, which explicitly denies federal courts jurisdiction over lawsuits initiated against one of the United States by citizens of another state or by citizens or subjects of any foreign state. Modern judges and legal academics often argue that the 11th Amendment is a narrow exception to Congress's broad power to create federal courts. But we know from the amendment's history that its purpose was exactly the opposite, to limit the federal court's jurisdiction to the strict confines of Article Three. These early Supreme Court decisions and the clamorous response to Chisholm must be read in the context of the political disputes of the 1790s. At issue was just how much authority had been granted to the federal government through the Constitution. A Book You're Not Supposed to Read Reclaiming the American Revolution, the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions and Their Legacy by William J. Watkins, Jr., New York, Palgrave Macmillan, 2004 Finally, A Bill of Rights Republican opponents of ratification had not been persuaded by the Federalists' promise that the powers of federal congresses and courts would extend only to areas expressly mentioned by the Constitution. In the end, following the lead of Massachusetts Federalists, those in several other states, notably New York and Virginia, vowed to seek amendments to the Constitution in the first federal Congress. When Congress met, James Madison overcame his colleagues' hesitance to spend time on so insignificant a task, and Congress referred twelve proposed amendments, which ultimately became Amendments 1 through 10 and 27, to the states for ratification. The first ten of them, known as the Bill of Rights, were all about limiting the authority of the federal government. Madison, still a nationalist, had described the proposed amendments as safe, if not necessary, and politic, if not obligatory. He had an amendment of his own, which would have given federal courts power to supervise state governments when it came to speech, the press, and religion. 
but it was so unpopular that it wasn't even sent to the states. Americans were looking to limit federal power, not expand it. Of the first ten amendments actually adopted, by far the most important was the tenth. It made explicit what Edmund Randolph, James Wilson, Charles Cotesworth Pinckney, and other Federalists had promised was already implicit: the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. This could be understood only as a limitation on federal authority. The same goes for what became the First Amendment, which says that Congress shall make no law. Impairing the freedom of speech, the press, or assembly, guarantees the right to petition, and establishes the right to the free exercise of one's religion. The entire thrust of Republican argument was about restricting the power of the federal government, and the Bill of Rights is framed in the first and tenth amendments with both specific and sweeping restrictions on the power of Congress. The Washington Factor. During the long, hot summer of 1787. As the Constitution was being written in Philadelphia, George Washington loomed large over the debates. He was the presiding officer at the convention, but he did not often speak. Nevertheless, the understanding that he would serve as the first president of the United States guided the constitutional design of the executive branch. The delegates trusted him to behave as he had during the Revolution and since, as a dedicated Republican. Partly at James Madison's recommendation. Washington made his former Continental Army aide de camp Alexander Hamilton the first Secretary of the Treasury. This brilliant admirer of the British Constitution also admired the British financial system established earlier in the century by eminent Whig politician Robert Walpole. Hamilton proposed to replicate it so far as was possible in America. Others, wary of Walpole's example and suspicious of Hamilton's Republican bona fides, sniffed out monarchist plotting and determined to stop it. Some of these people, influenced by anti-Walpole British writers, resolved to oppose the new government in its early days, whatever it did. John Taylor of Caroline, for example, said that the course of a government is established at its beginnings, so the federal government's every move had to be eyed suspiciously. If it were allowed to set out on a career of exercising powers not expressly granted by the Constitution, it would eventually careen further and further from the pure republicanism of the Revolution. Secretary Hamilton, like Washington, had suffered hardship, cold, and hunger at Valley Forge. Like his chief, he had seen the Continental Army constantly short of men and money. There must be a stronger federal government, he believed, so that in the event of future wars—and there would be future wars—government credit would be good. Then men and supplies would be plentiful. No American soldier would ever freeze to death in his winter quarters again. The United States would be able to defend themselves even in the absence of a French king willing to go bankrupt on their behalf. As Treasury Secretary, then Hamilton proposed a number of measures to solidify the financial structure. He had the first Congress assume responsibility for the debts incurred by the states in fighting the Revolution and persuaded Congress to fund a portion of the debt. The Virginia House of Delegates, under the leadership of Patrick Henry, the Old Dominion's foremost revolutionary figure and undisputed master of the all-powerful General Assembly. Adopted a formal resolution decrying this assumption and funding of the state's debts as unconstitutional. Joining Henry was Henry Lee, who had helped lead the Federalists against him in the Richmond Ratification Convention. The federal government, they said, had not been expressly granted power to undertake any such measures, and so they were unconstitutional. Not only was the General Assembly suspicious of the federal government, but it was also prepared to resist it. 
These were the same men, after all, who had made war on England less than a decade earlier on very similar grounds. Hamilton, however, cut a deal with the Virginians, placing the federal capital between their state and Maryland in exchange for Virginia's accepting his debt assumption program. Thomas Jefferson, as America's diplomat to France, had been absent during the writing and ratification of the Constitution, but he was a leading Republican voice on his return. In 1791, he joined James Madison, Virginia's leading Federalist after Washington, in opposing another of Hamilton's financial measures. This one was intended to create an American version of the Bank of England to manage the government's debt. But in the U.S. House of Representatives, to Hamilton's surprise, Madison classified the bill as unconstitutional. He noted that nothing in Article One, Section Eight, where Congress's powers are enumerated, gave Congress power to create any kind of corporation, including a bank. Congress, nevertheless, passed the bill incorporating a bank. President Washington then asked his cabinet, which included Edmund Randolph, Hamilton, and Jefferson, whether they thought Madison was right about the bill being unconstitutional. Jefferson responded with a classic affirmation of what the Constitution actually says and means. The underlying principle of the Constitution, Jefferson wrote, is that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. This is the language of the Tenth Amendment, which, although not yet ratified, had already been passed out of Congress. How did one know if a power had been delegated to Congress by the Constitution? Jefferson looked at the list of Congress's powers in Article One, Section Eight. There was nothing there about chartering corporations, let alone banks, so Congress had no such power. This meant, Jefferson said, that the power to charter banks remained in the state legislatures, where it had been before the Constitution was adopted. Jefferson then turned to the so-called elastic clause, the necessary and proper clause at the end of Article One, Section Eight. It says that Congress has the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, the previously enumerated powers of Congress, and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Supporters of the bank argued that under this clause, Congress could charter a national bank. Jefferson countered that chartering a bank was not necessary to carry out any of Congress's enumerated powers. And thus was not permitted by the necessary and proper clause. Attorney General Edmund Randolph concurred with Jefferson. Hamilton, in rebuttal to Jefferson, made the classic argument for conceding to Congress nearly untrammeled discretion under the Constitution. Hamilton argued that clauses within Article One, Section Eight, granted Congress powers related to the economy, such as the power to regulate trade with foreign countries, the power to regulate trade among the states, the power to regulate trade with the Indian tribes, the power to coin money, and so on. These clauses, taken together, reflected a mandate to Congress to supervise the national economy. Only it could decide how to do so. The necessary and proper clause, according to Hamilton, granted Congress discretion in this regard. Contrary to Jefferson's argument, Hamilton stated that necessary did not really mean necessary, but that it might mean helpful, useful, or convenient, or one supposes desired. There was nothing in the Constitution prohibiting Congress from chartering a corporation. Hamilton noted, where the ends were constitutional and the means not prohibited, the means were constitutional. Note the distinction between Jefferson's approach and Hamilton's. Jefferson started with the assumption that Congress has only those powers that are expressly delegated to it. 
This was also what such leading Federalists as James Wilson, Edmund Randolph, and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney argued in 1787 to 1788. Hamilton, on the other hand, started with the assumption that Congress was analogous to the British Parliament in having all powers the Constitution did not expressly deny it. This suited Hamilton's desire that the United States copy the British system, which he regarded as the most successful in the world. But it was a model of congressional authority that the Philadelphia Convention had rejected when it rejected the Nationalist Virginia Plan. Moreover, it was directly at odds not only with the Tenth Amendment and later the Eleventh Amendment, but with much of what Hamilton had written in his confused contributions to the Federalist. Washington, a nationalist, eventually followed Hamilton's advice by signing the Bank Bill. What a patriot said. I wish it were possible to obtain a single amendment to our Constitution. I would be willing to depend on that alone for the reduction of the administration of our government to the genuine principles of its Constitution. I mean an additional article taking from the federal government the power of borrowing. Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to John Taylor, November twenty-sixth, seventeen ninety-eight. The trouble with France. When the French Revolution began in seventeen eighty-nine. Washington and many, but not all, Americans responded with cautious optimism. When Washington's friend, the Marquis de Lafayette, sent him the key to the Bastille, he put it on his mantel at Mount Vernon, where it remains today. In time, however, the revolution took a most unsavory turn, as Governor Morris, on site in Paris as American minister to the French court, had predicted from the start. The king was deposed, then killed, as was his queen. France eventually became involved in a series of first defensive, then aggressive wars, and the kingdom's traditional Catholicism was replaced by a new pagan religion of reason. As France became embroiled in a war against Britain and other leading European powers, Hamilton, as Treasury Secretary, wanted to stay out of the mess entirely. America was far too weak to determine the outcome and could only hurt itself by becoming involved. Besides that, taking France's side would mean an interruption of trade with England. Still, America's chief trading partner, as federal tax revenue came mainly from tariffs, taxes on imports, interruption of foreign trade threatened the new government's financial future, and thus all Hamilton's plans for American credit. Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson made two main points regarding America's stance. First, America had, since 1778, been under treaty obligation to come to France's assistance if it were attacked. France had lived up to its side of the mutual defense treaty during the American Revolution, and if the United States did not reciprocate, France would have every moral and, under the law of nations, legal right to exact retribution militarily. Hamilton said that the treaty in question had been between the United States and Louis the Sixteenth, who had been deposed in 1792. Thus, America was under no moral or legal obligation to assist France. In his view, the treaty had lapsed. Jefferson responded that it was for France to choose its form of government. True, we had entered into the treaty with the French monarch, but he had been the country's chief executive. If the French had chosen to replace their monarchy with a republic, how could the Americans criticize them for that? Washington finally, in effect, opted for Hamilton's position. He issued a public proclamation that any American citizen who aided either side in the war would be prosecuted. For Jefferson, Madison, John Taylor of Caroline, and their Republican followers, the president's proclamation was an executive branch usurpation. The president was to execute policy, not make it. Madison wrote that this was only the latest attempt of the Federalists to assimilate the American Constitution to the British one.
In Britain, unlike in America, it was up to the king to declare war, to conclude treaties, and otherwise to make foreign policy. Madison went further and accused Hamilton and pro-British Federalists of being monarchist. Republican clubs existed across the United States. Republicans celebrated partisan holidays. The 4th of July was associated with Republican leader Jefferson, and they held dinners and parades in support of their party and of Republican France. Partisan tension marked life within all the states and also among them. With that in mind, in 1794, two northern U.S. senators, New York's Rufus King, later a Federalist presidential nominee, and Connecticut's Oliver Ellsworth, later Chief Justice of the United States, buttonholed Virginia's John Taylor of Caroline and tried to convince him that the political divide between North and South was irreparable, and that they should broker a permanent scission of the Union. Taylor rejected the idea, saying that if Hamilton's financial program were repealed, intersectional grievances would end. But the idea of dividing the Union stayed in Taylor's mind, as we'll see. Washington Crusades for a Whiskey Tax. The year 1794 also witnessed the Whiskey Rebellion. In adopting Secretary Hamilton's financial proposals, the first Congress had imposed excise taxes on carriages and whiskey. It seemed that the latter was a kind of sin tax, but many Americans did not consider whiskey an optional component of their lives. Farmers in western districts who grew wheat could eat only so much of it, and transporting wheat to market on crude western roads was often impracticable. So they converted it to whiskey. The excise then fell hardest on those least able to afford it. Farmers in remote districts, Hamilton, however, saw the rebellion as a wonderful opportunity. By assuming the state's debts and paying the federal government's debt obligations on time, he hoped to convince foreigners that the United States government was a good credit risk. Using armed force to collect the whiskey excise could only improve America's credit rating. Washington followed Hamilton's advice, called out the militia of four states, got on his horse. And became the only sitting president ever to lead an army in person when he rode out toward the rebels. The rebellion dissolved as the army approached, but the point had been made. Republicans now believed the Federalists would stop at nothing to impose their views. Hamilton had avowed his monarchist sympathies in Philadelphia in 1787. Republicans looked at the Federalist record. A monarchist financial system, sympathy for European monarchies against Republican France, a monarchist reading of the federal constitution, using the army to enforce federal law, and decided it all fit neatly together as a monarchist plot. And as far as Hamilton goes, they were right. In private conversation with Vice President John Adams and Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, Hamilton had affirmed his belief in monarchy. And John Adams, for his part, had told Virginia's senators that the government must soon be replaced with a monarchy. As the political divisions deepened, Republicans saw themselves as defenders of the Constitution against Federalist usurpers. Jay's Treaty sparks controversy. Republicans had another source of contention when, in 1795, Chief Justice John Jay brought home from England a treaty subsequently known by his name. Jay's Treaty purported to resolve some of America's outstanding issues with Great Britain, including the resolution of debt owed to Britain and settlement of the Canadian border. While increasing trade with the British Empire, even at the price of restricting American cotton exports, the opposition took the treaty as a sellout of American interests. The Chief Justice was a known Anglophile, a Federalist from New York, and a personal and political friend of Hamilton's. Jay, on the other hand, knew the treaty would be unpopular; it may have cost him the presidency, but believed it to be in American interests, most especially because it voided the danger of war with Britain.
Opposition to the treaty centered in the House, where Madison had by this point come to the head of a unified Republican opposition. Although the Senate, at Washington's request, ultimately ratified the treaty, Madison held that the treaty could be effectively negated if the House refused to appropriate money to implement it. Today, it's no surprise that many liberal professors take the Republicans' opposition to funding Jay's treaty as proof that the Republicans weren't concerned with the original understanding of the Constitution. Why? Because the Constitution, they say, vests the Senate with the exclusive role in adopting treaties. But in fact, Madison's argument that the Jay Treaty could be defeated by the House's refusal to fund it was perfectly consistent with what Madison, the architect of the Constitution, had said during the ratification process. It is true that this branch of the Congress, referring to the House, he said, is not of necessity to be consulted in the forming of treaties, but as its approbation and cooperation often may be necessary in carrying treaties into full effect, and as the support of the government and of the plans of the President and Senate in general must be drawn from the purse which they hold, the sentiments of this body cannot fail to have very great weight, even when the body itself may have no constitutional authority. Madison's Republicans suffered a narrow defeat anyway when the House voted to fund implementation of the treaty. This ratcheted up the political fervor in the country. The treaty meant that the United States would have a closer trade relationship with Britain than it had had since the Revolution. The Republicans were furious. What, they asked, about our mutual defense treaty with France? What about the fact that Britain impressed American sailors, albeit who might have been British-born, into the Royal Navy? From the Republicans' perspective, not to mention France's, the Federalists were ignoring America's moral and legal obligation to its fellow republic in favor of monarchical Britain. No Aliens Allowed The Alien Enemies Act authorized the President to apprehend and deport resident aliens if their home countries were at war with the United States. Enacted July 6, 1798, with no expiration date, it remains in effect today. Breaking the law is against the law. Washington's retirement in 1796 and John Adams's election as the next president exacerbated the political rift in the country. Party divisions among Americans were fierce. Republican mobs threatened Federalists and even, according to Abigail Adams, the president himself. Federalists, who fancied themselves loyal Americans, worried about the large number of immigrants joining the Republicans. So they reformed the nation's immigration laws. Under the Naturalization Act, it would now take 14 years of residency before an immigrant could become a citizen. In 1798, an undeclared naval war with France began to protect American shipping from the French Navy, which was trying to disrupt trade with Britain. Federalists in Congress levied new taxes to fund expansion of the Army and Navy. The Federalists also enacted the Alien Enemies Act, which authorized the President to apprehend and deport resident aliens if their home countries were at war with the United States. The Alien Friends Act authorized him to deport any resident alien considered dangerous to the peace and safety of the United States. The Federalists also implemented the Sedition Act, signed into law by President Adams on July 14, 1798, surely not by coincidence, which stifled dissent among Americans. By this time, James Madison had retired from Congress, and Jefferson remained in the government essentially as a figurehead. Jefferson and other leading Virginia Republicans, including John Taylor of Caroline, insisted that these Federalist laws were unconstitutional. The Republicans had three objections to the Alien Friends Act. As dangerous aliens could be identified only through their associations, utterances, or publications, the act violated the First Amendment. 
Even aliens, they said, could claim the rights of free speech, freedom of the press, and free assembly, rights that Congress was prohibited from infringing. Not so, said the Federalists. Foreigners had no claim to constitutional rights, and Congress was perfectly entitled to ask them to leave at any time. Republicans answered that the Constitution explicitly left it to the states to regulate immigration until 1808, so the statute was unconstitutional. They also insisted that the act violated the principle of the separation of powers by giving the president responsibilities properly confided to the judicial branch. Of more concern to Republicans, however, was the Sedition Act. While the Alien Enemies Act applied to foreigners from hostile countries and the Alien Friends Act applied to foreigners from non-hostile countries, the Sedition Act was aimed at American citizens. Republicans said that the Sedition Act violated the Tenth Amendment because no power to enact such a law was mentioned in the Constitution. Some portions of the Sedition Act were statements of the obvious. One section made it a crime to thwart federal law. What was controversial, however, was the Sedition Act's ban on saying or publishing anything that portrayed the government, including all its agents, except in hilarious exception the vice president Thomas Jefferson, in a bad light. Among those punished by fine, imprisonment, or both for violating the Sedition Act were editors of major Republican newspapers and a Republican congressman. Republicans insisted that these four acts were unconstitutional, but Federalists disagreed. The First Amendment, Federalists noted, did not say that Congress must allow people to say or print whatever they wanted to, but that their freedoms of speech and press could not be abridged by Congress. That meant that the pre-existing limits on the freedom of speech, such as that one could not defraud a purchaser or commit perjury in court, continued to be in effect. In English common law, they said, sedition was illegal, so a federal statute banning sedition did not abridge freedom of speech. And because the Sedition Act made truth a defense, as common law sedition prohibitions had not done, far from abridging freedom of speech, Federalists argued, the Sedition Act broadened it. Don't trust judges. Federal judges very happily sought out people to prosecute for their political opinions under the Sedition Act of 1798, signed into law by monarchist, bet you didn't know that either, President John Adams. The Federalists' secret weapon. Judges, federal judges in the period 1798 to 1801 were all federalists. From the beginning, they had been chosen for their eminence and because they were federalists. Washington had enunciated those tests at the beginning of his administration, and while he later appointed former Republican opponents of ratification and would have appointed more had they accepted the jobs, he left office having filled the federal courts entirely with members of his party. All fell somewhere along the monarchist-nationalist continuum. Which, ironically, had been repudiated at the Constitutional Convention in favor of a Republican, state-centered model, so the Constitution was arguably in the hands of its enemies. These men then enthusiastically supported the Sedition Act, and far from worrying about checks and balances, federal judges believed, as John Jay once told Washington, that their chief obligation was to secure the success of Washington's and then Adams's administration. Given that Congress had passed the Sedition Act, the president had signed it, and federal judges had enforced it, where could Republicans look for succor? From Monticello, Thomas Jefferson answered, "To the states." He had been persuaded of this by John Taylor of Caroline. In Jefferson's words, the states represented the last ditch of Republican resistance to the reign of witches. In early June, seventeen ninety-eight, Jefferson wrote Taylor a letter. Taylor apparently was now flirting with secession. 
Jefferson told him that the political problems of the 1790s would not be solved by Virginia and North Carolina leaving the United States to form a separate confederation. It was part of man's nature, Jefferson said, to be fractious, and so a union of Carolinians and Virginians must soon be divided between a Carolina party and a Virginia party. In the end, he said, each state would be left to itself. Besides, Jefferson argued, the American people had been deluded into supporting the Federalists. Once the tax bills for the recent military buildup arrived, they would see the error of their ways and cast the Federalists out for good. Taylor was unpersuaded. He told Jefferson that a mere change of parties would not solve the problem, because the problem was human nature. Men always wanted more power. A southern aristocracy ruling the country would be as bad as a northern one. Instead, Taylor's answer was to amend the Constitution extensively to prohibit federal overreaching. What a Patriot Said On every question of construction, let us carry ourselves back to the time when the Constitution was adopted, recollect the spirit manifested in the debates, and instead of trying what meaning can be squeezed out of the text or invented against it, conform to the probable one which was passed. Thomas Jefferson Jefferson and Madison argue for states' rights. Virginia Republican leaders, meanwhile, met at Monticello and decided that Virginia and Kentucky, two Republican-controlled states, would adopt resolutions in their state legislatures spelling out their objections to the Alien and Sedition Acts. Kentucky's resolutions of 1798, drafted secretly by Jefferson to avoid prosecution under the Sedition Act, argued for state-centered constitutionalism. The Constitution had been ratified, and thus the federal government had been created, by the states for their own purposes— they had retained all powers not delegated by them to the federal government through the Constitution. When the federal government undertook to exceed the bounds of its authority, its acts were unauthoritative, void, and of no force. The states were sovereign, and, to this compact of the Constitution, each state acceded as a state and is an integral party. Who, then, was to decide when the federal government adopted unconstitutional policies— Surely not the federal government, since that would have made its discretion and not the Constitution the measure of its powers. But as in all other cases of compact among parties having no common judge, each party has an equal right to judge for itself, as well of infractions as of the mode and measure of redress. When it came right down to it, the states, which had created the federal government, still bore ultimate responsibility for ensuring that their monster did not oppress their people. The Sedition Act, Jefferson said, was objectionable on two constitutional grounds. First, and most important, it violated the Tenth Amendment principle, that powers not expressly delegated to the federal government through the Constitution were reserved to the states or to the people. Second, it violated the First Amendment's prohibition on congressional infringement of the rights of free speech and press. It was, therefore, null and void. In Virginia, James Madison drafted the resolutions adopted by the House of Delegates, he argued that when the federal government persisted in an unconstitutional and dangerous policy, as with the Alien and Sedition Acts, the states have the right and are in duty bound to interpose, to prevent their enforcement within their respective territories. The two Republican legislatures asked other states to join them in propounding the principles laid out in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. No other southern state did so, though North Carolina considered it but ten states north of Virginia issued their own refutations of the resolutions. On what grounds? In general, they argue that the Sedition Act was a good law that should have been adopted sooner, and that interpreting the federal constitution was a task for the federal courts, not for the states. 
Kentucky responded in 1799 with a second set of resolutions, these two conceived by Jefferson. Kentucky's legislature said that Kentucky loved the Union for the purposes for which it was created and insisted that it would be among the last states to secede. This was an implied threat, because while Republican leaders had privately discussed the possibility of secession, only one, Virginia Congressman William Branch Giles, had advocated it in public. So this was the first official mention of secession in the context of the Alien and Sedition Acts. But when the federal government propounded unconstitutional and dangerous laws, it was the duty of the states to nullify those laws. James Madison, too, wrote a sequel to his resolutions. His report of 1800 did far more than simply defend the Virginia Resolutions of 1798. It objected to the entire direction of Federalist policy in the 1790s. Madison's most significant argument concerned the use of the word state. Federalists had objected to the idea that the states had created the federal government. The Philadelphia Convention, Federalist legislatures rightly noted, was not a state organ, nor were the ratification conventions parts of the state governments. Clearly, then, the states had not created the federal government. Madison noted that the word state had three common significations. It could be used to refer to the territory of a state, as in, I'd like to go to the state of North Carolina. It could be used to refer to a state government, as in, the state of Georgia was a party to Chisholm versus Georgia. Or it could refer to the sovereign people of a state, as in, the state of Virginia ratified the Constitution. Federalists were reading the word state purely as referring to state government. The Virginia Resolutions used the word state to refer to the sovereign people of Virginia. In saying that the Union was a union of states, Republicans understood that the Union was a union of sovereign peoples, the people of Delaware, the people of North Carolina, the people of Maryland, the people of Rhode Island, and so on. Most history and legal textbooks say that Jefferson and Madison invented the idea of state sovereignty, but as we've seen, they only argued for what the founders had already understood to be true about the sovereign states from the beginning, even if some of the founders, the nationalist and monarchist wings, wanted to change that understanding. In the end, what Thomas Jefferson had predicted to John Taylor of Caroline proved to be true, or at least partly true. The Republicans won the election of 1800, and the Federalists lost control of Congress and the executive branch forever. The Sedition Act expired at the end of John Adams's term. Jefferson hoped that this sweeping victory, Republican vindication, meant that constitutional squabbles would now come to an end. Time to rebel? Thomas Jefferson and James Madison said in 1798 that a state must resist federal enforcement of an unconstitutional and dangerous policy. Chapter 5. The Imperial Judiciary. It started with Marshall. Guess what? Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall had the nerve to tell one of the framers of the Constitution that he had been flat-out wrong. Based on Marshall's flawed reasoning in McCulloch v. Maryland, President Andrew Jackson almost invaded South Carolina. The phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, refers to the holders of high offices, a fact that Marshall's Federalist cronies conveniently ignored. Jefferson's victory was supposed to inaugurate a new era of strict constitutional interpretation, putting an end to presidential, congressional, and judicial usurpations of power. It certainly wrought a radical change in the programs and policies of the federal government. Shortly after his inauguration, Congress repealed all internal taxes, so that the only sources of federal revenue would be tariffs and sales of federally owned land. 
It also slashed the military budget dramatically. Unlike modern budget-cutting politicians who claim to slash government spending while merely reducing its rate of growth by a point or two, Jefferson's Republicans ultimately eliminated all seagoing vessels from the Navy and cut the Army's manpower by nearly 95%. The Loathed Sedition Act expired on the last day of John Adams's administration, and Jefferson not only pardoned everyone convicted under it, but also returned the fines they paid. No historian has ever thought to question whether Jefferson had constitutional authority to refund fines paid by felons. Republicans also acted to rein in the federal judiciary. The last Federalist Congress had passed the Judiciary Act of 1801, expanding and reorganizing the judicial branch. Republicans hooted that the act was a nakedly partisan attempt to pack the courts with Federalists, just as the people were throwing them from elected office. One myth about this act popularized by Republican propagandists at the time and echoed by professional historians even now, is that John Adams filled all the new posts established by the Judiciary Act with dedicated Federalists. In fact, Adams did not. Some were not Federalists at all. But the run of professional historians and legal scholars, as this book should make apparent, rarely do their homework. In any event, the Jeffersonian Republican Congress not only repealed the Judiciary Act of 1801, but on April 23, 1802, it also passed a law proroguing the Supreme Court for 14 months to ensure that before it returned to session, the Judiciary Act would be fully repealed. Federalists responded by talking among themselves about New England's secession. But they were let down by the Supreme Court, which, when it returned, accepted the repeal's constitutionality. Still, the reckoning between the Republican Congress and the Federalist Judiciary had only just begun. The main battle centered on Congress's attempt to impeach and remove two federal judges. A Book You're Not Supposed to Read Impeachment, The Constitutional Problems by Raoul Berger Cambridge, Massachusetts Harvard University Press, 1973 High Crimes and Misdemeanors Abound United States District Court Judge John Pickering of New Hampshire appeared to be conducting his duties while severely intoxicated. Under the Judiciary Act of 1801, circuit judges could step in when a district judge was incapacitated, or, in this case, inebriated. As it had been repealed, however, Pickering had to do his duty himself. Some of Pickering's friends tried to defend him by saying he was insane, not drunk. Other Federalists counseled him not to resign his office, and so he didn't. Jefferson referred the matter to the House in early 1803, but the Senate trial did not begin until March 1804. The Constitution provides in Article 2, Section 4, that the President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. The phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, was borrowed, like much else in the Constitution, from English precedents. It had a precise legal meaning when the Constitution was ratified. It covered not only high crimes and petty corruption, but also disability, including physical, mental, or psychological impairment. No one has ever claimed, however, that politicians were legal scholars, and most of the senators accepted Pickering's lawyer's argument that insanity was neither a high crime nor a high misdemeanor. Still, they removed Pickering from office anyway. While the Pickering matter was pending before Congress, the Federalist Supreme Court under Chief Justice John Marshall rebuked the Jefferson administration in the landmark decision of Marbury v. Madison. This case affirmed that federal courts could review congressional legislation, and gratuitously lecture elected officials. 
William Marbury had been nominated by John Adams for a very minor judicial post in the District of Columbia. The Senate had confirmed his appointment. President Adams had signed his commission. Then Secretary of State and soon to be Chief Justice John Marshall had failed to deliver it to him. Thus, Marbury could not enter into his office. Because the case focused on Marshall's own incompetence as Secretary of State, presumably he should have recused himself, but he did not. Marshall's Republican successor as Secretary of State was none other than James Madison, and he had no intention of delivering Marbury's commission. Marbury responded by suing Madison in the Supreme Court. Despite what most legal scholars will tell you, judicial review was uncontroversial before Marbury v. Madison. During the ratification of the Constitution, Federalists had said federal courts would have the power of judicial review, and Republicans, specifically Patrick Henry, said they hoped they would use it. Besides, both lower-level federal courts and the Supreme Court had at least implicitly exercised this power before. The repute granted Marbury rests more on Marshall's ringing claim on behalf of the powers of the Supreme Court, which he took directly from Alexander Hamilton's Federalist 78, than on Judicial Review's novelty. Of more importance was the political element of Marshall's decision. In the federal system, we have two kinds of courts, courts of general jurisdiction, state courts, and courts of limited jurisdiction, federal courts. Before a federal court involves itself in a case, it must decide whether that case falls under its constitutional jurisdiction. Marshall, however, did not begin with this question, or with the question of whether there was a federal law requiring Madison to give Marbury his commission. Instead, he asked, Does Mr. Marbury have a right to his commission? To ask the question, Marshall knew, was to affirm it. And Marshall duly argued that to deny Marbury his commission was to wrong him gravely. Nevertheless, the court's authority to issue a writ of mandamus, forcing Madison to deliver the commission, rested in the Judiciary Act of 1789, which, Marshall said, was itself unconstitutional because it granted the court jurisdiction beyond what the Constitution permitted. Therefore, the relevant portion of the Judiciary Act was null and void. This was the first time the court had declared a congressional act unconstitutional, and some have argued that Marshall's motivation was more political than anything else. He wanted to say that Marbury was right, but was fearful of a direct confrontation with Jefferson and Madison, because how, if it came down to it, could he force them to give the commission to Marbury? The real precedent established by Marbury versus Madison was not for judicial review, but for the presumed right of the court to lecture elected officials even when the court had no jurisdiction over the question at hand. Chief Justice Marshall Touts the Federalist Marshall never referred directly to the ratification debates in his opinions. He preferred to rely on the Federalist, but the Federalists' nationalist explanations of the Constitution were rejected at the Philadelphia Convention and during the ratification debates. Impeaching Justice Chase Next on the Congressional docket was Justice Samuel Chase. Republicans accused Chase, an ardent Federalist, of abusing his office in the interest of partisan politics. One notorious and illustrative case was the Sedition Act prosecution of James Callender, a journalist who had written scurrilous attacks on President John Adams. As one of the articles of impeachment against him put it, Chase, the presiding judge, showed an indecent solicitude for the conviction of the accused, highly disgraceful to the character of a judge, as it was subversive. As Raoul Berger, the greatest of American legal historians, put it, Chase's behavior in the calendar trial went against his judicial oath, which said, in part, I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent on me. Chase was far from impartial. He had 
selected the victim, announced his intention to punish him for his atrocious and profligate libel, procured his presentment by the grand jury, refused to excuse jurors who confessed their bias against the accused, at every step identified himself with the prosecution, and taken every means to disconcert, discredit, and disable counsel for the defense. Chase's behavior in this and other cases had made him notorious in Republican circles. The House of Representatives believed that Chase's behavior warranted his removal from office and impeached him, making Chase the only Supreme Court justice ever impeached. It was proven beyond any doubt that Chase had conducted himself in a prejudiced, partisan way that made him unfit to serve as a judge, trial or appellate. But in one of the great reverberating mistakes in the history of American law, the Senate acquitted him. Why? His counsel argued that Chase had never committed treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Without an indictable criminal offense by Chase, his counsel argued, the Senate could not remove him from office. The Senate accepted this argument. But the argument is wrong. In the English law tradition that shaped the Constitution, a high crime or high misdemeanor was different from an indictable crime or misdemeanor. High was a category of misbehavior associated with high office and with political misbehavior. Thus, in 1757, Sir William Blackstone, whose commentaries on the laws of England formed the bedrock of American legal education in the late 18th century, wrote that the first and principal high misdemeanor is the maladministration of such high officers as are in the public trust and employment. This is usually punished by the method of parliamentary impeachment. As Berger notes, maladministration did not imply an indictable offense. In fact, among high crimes and misdemeanors, as a historian of English law has pointed out, were cases in which judges misled their sovereign by unconstitutional opinions, as well as attempts to subvert the fundamental laws and introduce arbitrary power, purely political offenses that would not be tried before an ordinary court. Chase had certainly committed high crimes and misdemeanors, if not indictable offenses, by these standards. The Chase verdict forced Jefferson to conclude that impeachment was a farce and was no check at all on judicial misbehavior. At the end of his life, Jefferson wrote that they, federal judges, consider themselves secure for life, they skulk from responsibility to public opinion, the only remaining hold on them. A judiciary independent of a king or executive alone is a good thing, but independence of the will of the nation is a solecism, at least in a republican government. The Chase acquittal set the precedent that a federal judge may disobey his oath, because it is not an indictable criminal offense, by ignoring or effectively rewriting a statute or the Constitution, and nothing will come of it. The Marshall Court soon took advantage of the Chase verdict. Legal Latinisms Mandamus, Latin for We Command, a type of writ that a court can issue to compel performance of a mandatory duty when the right, the duty, and the absence of an alternative remedy are all clear. The Supreme Court's March Through Georgia and Virginia In Article I, Section 10, the Constitution protects contracts from any state tampering. No state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. This is the so-called Contracts Clause. The original motivation behind the clause was to prevent states from adopting stay laws, as they sometimes had during the Revolutionary period, that prohibited lenders from collecting debts for stated periods of time. A provision similar to the Contracts Clause was included in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, stating that, in the just preservation of rights and property, it is understood and declared that no law ought ever to be made or have force in the said territory that shall, in any matter whatever, 
interfere with or affect private contracts or engagements, bona fide and without fraud previously formed. The first time the Supreme Court considered a case under the Contracts Clause was in Fletcher v. Peck, 1810. This case arose out of the notorious Yazoo scandal, one of the great public swindles in the history of the world. In that case, a group of land investors had bribed all but one member of the Georgia legislature to sell them an enormous area of public land, most of what is now the states of Alabama and Mississippi, virtually for nothing. The sale was completed in 1795 as a grant of land to a private company, but then repealed, and the bribed legislators cast out in 1796. John Peck bought his title to some of that land in 1800, then sold it in 1803 to Robert Fletcher. Fletcher next sued Peck for the purchase price, saying that his supposed title had been negated by the legislative repeal of the original sale, and thus was worthless. Chief Justice Marshall, for the court, decided that the nub of the issue was whether a legislator's grant of public land qualified as a contract under the Contracts Clause. He and his fellow justices decided that it did. So the Supreme Court ruled a state law, George's repeal of the 1795 land grant, unconstitutional and void, which in practical terms meant that, according to the Supreme Court, the people had no democratic remedy to correct the bribed action of a corrupt legislature. Not only was Marshall's equivalence of grants and contracts dubious, but he also skipped over a crucial point, which was whether Georgia ever had a contractual obligation, given that the land grant was the result of bribery in the first place. As the Northwest Ordinance's Contracts Clause illustrates, the obligation of contracts was understood to be dependent on the absence of fraud, as well as coercion. This legal understanding was universal, but Marshall ignored it, with dire results. The revolutionary, one might say anti-constitutional, nature of the Fletcher decision should not be overlooked. The Constitutional Convention had denied Congress the power to veto the acts of state legislatures. The Convention certainly did not mean such power to be assumed by the Court instead. During the entire debate on ratification in Virginia, where extremely able men teased out the meanings and potential dangers lurking unsuspected in each clause of the proposed Constitution, no one ever said, and the least responsible institution of the federal government is to have a veto power over the everyday enactments of each of the state legislatures. Had anyone suspected that it did, he certainly would have pointed it out. No one intended to grant federal courts such authority. Marshall had two incentives to rule as he did in the Fletcher case, one personal and one institutional. From a personal point of view, he was himself a substantial investor in unsettled lands, and so he might be expected to favor people who claimed to have received state grants. Institutionally, Marshall saw in the Georgia lands case an opportunity to buttress the position of the judicial branch in the federal system and to help make national what had been intended as a federal constitution. In Marbury v. Madison, Marshall had staked out the Supreme Court's authoritative claim to the power to review congressional enactments for constitutionality. In Fletcher v. Beck, he grabbed at the chance to claim what ultimately would prove to be a far more significant right, that of federal courts to supervise enactments of state legislatures. If in Marbury he had exceeded the limits of his authority by lecturing the president on the merits of a case that he admitted the Supreme Court had no constitutional power to decide, in Fletcher he and his colleagues, in deciding the case incorrectly, forced Georgians to accept the validity of an enormous fraud. There remained one more element of the triad of federal judicial powers yet to be established, the federal court's power to supervise the performance of state judiciaries. 
an opportunity presented itself in the 1816 case of Martin v. Hunter's lessee. The case centered on whether Virginia laws that had allowed for the confiscation of loyalist property during the Revolutionary War were rendered obsolete by treaties negotiated between the United States and Britain that protected loyalist property. The Virginia Court of Appeals, Virginia's highest court, had ruled that these treaties did not conflict with or overrule the Virginia laws. In Fletcher v. Peck, Marshall had written an outlandish opinion in order to protect the interests of land speculators generally. In Martin, most of the land titles at issue belonged to a company whose major shareholders included Marshall himself and his brother. Marshall had a history of looking out for his brother's interests. After the Republican Congress's 1801 Judiciary Act, Marshall had tried and failed to get his fellow justices to join him in saving his brother's federal judicial post. The Supreme Court took the case from the Virginia Court of Appeals under Section 25 of the Judiciary Act of 1789, which said that the federal Supreme Court could hear appeals of federal questions from the state's top courts. The Supreme Court, in asking the Virginia Court to send the record of the case for review, used peremptory language of a type a superior uses with an inferior, and Virginia's high court responded by saying, The court is unanimously of opinion that the appellate power of the Supreme Court of the United States does not extend to this court under a sound construction of the Constitution of the United States. In short, it would not forward the record of the case, so the Supreme Court would have nothing to review. Marshall recused himself, so the Supreme Court's opinion came from Justice Joseph Story, a Marshall ally. Justice Story wrote that there must be one superintending authority to ensure that the law was applied in the same way throughout the Union. He reasoned that Article Three of the Constitution established that states could be brought before federal courts in some cases, so there could be no valid objection to Section 25 of the Judiciary Act on that ground. This argument had been made by the justices in Chisholm v. Georgia, and the people had instantly corrected it by adopting the Eleventh Amendment. The federal courts were thus limited to the types of jurisdiction listed in Article Three, which did not include appeals from state supreme courts. The Virginians argued that while the Constitution provided that it was the supreme law of the land, it also required that state judges take an oath to uphold it. In other words, state judges were to enforce the Constitution themselves, without the supervision of a federal court. It would have been odd, indeed, to come to any other conclusion. At the Philadelphia Convention, remember, the Virginia delegation first proposed, in its nationalist Virginia plan, that Congress have a power to veto state laws it judged unconstitutional. This was one of the numerous nationalist features of the Virginia plan that the convention ultimately omitted from the finished Constitution. The convention opted for a federal government with limited powers instead of a national government with unlimited powers. It rejected Hamilton's idea that the president should appoint state governors and U.S. senators. It rejected Madison's idea that the Congress should have a general legislative power. It rejected the idea that the federal courts should have a general jurisdiction. And it rejected the congressional veto. How strange, then, that anyone should read the federal Constitution with its list of powers of Congress and list of types of jurisdiction federal courts could be given as giving federal courts a veto over state judiciaries. The same logic applies to this case as applied to Fletcher v. Peck's claim that federal courts were supposed to superintend the behavior of state legislatures. In short, the Marshall Court, not the Virginia judiciary, was violating the Constitution. The result was not only that the Virginia courts were overruled and the relevant Virginia laws were voided, but that the Supreme Court seized the power to supervise state courts, an entirely unconstitutional usurpation of power. 
The Constitution created a federal system in which state governments, through elections, were held responsible by the people of the states. The constitutional model is a decentralized one, of the type envisioned by Thomas Jefferson when he wrote A Summary View of the Rights of British America. What judicial usurpation did to this model was to replace the authority of elected state governments with the authority of a few lawyers appointed by a president to positions of lifetime tenure without any check on their power. Does that sound like the model of government approved by the ratifiers of the Constitution? But if you studied constitutional law in school, you'll know that the martial court is treated with veneration, based on the idea that the law is the body of Supreme Court decisions, rather than the Constitution itself, as understood by the ratification conventions. Fletcher and Martin, and our acceptance of those decisions, have given federal judges ultimate authority over wide swaths of our political life that the men who adopted the Constitution on our behalf never intended them to have. The Supreme Court versus the Constitution James Madison protested that if Marshall's nationalist decision in McCulloch v. Maryland, 1819, which said that Congress's powers were not limited to those expressly delegated, had been foreseen, the Constitution would never have been ratified. Supreme Logic. Fraud is a Contract. According to John Marshall in Fletcher v. Peck, 1810, a fraudulent land purchase was a contract and was thus subject to the protection of the Contracts Clause. Coincidentally, Marshall was a substantial land investor. Madison's Banking Flip-Flops By the end of the War of 1812, the United States government had run up a substantial amount of debt. To help manage it, President James Madison asked Congress in 1816 to charter the Second Bank of the United States, which was ironic, as he had been the leading opponent of the constitutionality of the First Bank of the United States in 1791. He had then regarded congressional legislation to charter a bank as an unconstitutional threat to American liberties and a telltale sign that Hamilton and Washington wanted to overthrow the federal government. Only a politician could perform so breathtaking an about-face without feeling even slightly inconsistent, and Madison was up to the task. The second bank charter echoed the first in giving the federal government a 20% share in the bank. With that in mind, House Republicans, led by Kentucky's Henry Clay and South Carolina's John C. Calhoun, sponsored the bonus bill. They would take the bonus, their name for the federal government's profit as a bank shareholder, and spend it on internal improvements. These were what we now call infrastructure, a network of roads, bridges, and fortifications, as well as the clearing of some major harbors and rivers. Madison and Jefferson had each asked Congress in their State of the Union messages to appropriate money for these purposes. When the bonus bill reached his desk, however, Madison, in his last major act as president, vetoed it. In his bonus bill veto message in 1817, Madison explained his veto in terms virtually identical to those he had used in opposing Hamilton's bank charter bill in 1791. The Constitution's list of powers of Congress was exhaustive. The bonus bill's appropriations were for purposes not enumerated in the Constitution, and therefore the bonus bill was unconstitutional. He had to veto it. It was true that he had called on Congress to adopt measures like this, but he had been careful, Madison pointed out, to note that Congress could make up for any deficiency in its authority by initiating the process of amending the Constitution. If it wanted to adopt measures such as the bonus bill, that avenue still lay open. Madison said that, as written, the bonus bill violated the basic tenets of Republican constitutionalism, as had Hamilton's bank bill. 
The second bank bill, though nearly identical in content to the first, did not raise similar constitutional concerns. He said, because of the precedent established by Hamilton's bank. Madison said that he had made a good faith argument against the first bank bill's constitutionality in 1791, but he had lost. Not only had Congress and President Washington considered the bill constitutional, but so had a succession of other Congresses and presidents, else they would have acted to repeal it. In Madison's estimation, the constitutionality of congressional legislation chartering banks had become a dead issue. Madison's argument boiled down to this: If Congress undertook to exercise authority reserved to the states, the Bonus Bill, that was unconstitutional. If, however, the president signed Congress's bill exercising state powers, Hamilton's Bank Bill, and a string of Congresses and presidents joined in the exercise of those powers, what had been powers reserved to the states became powers delegated to the federal government. What Jefferson had called, in the context of King George III and Declaration of Independence, a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object, now operated to transfer power from the states where the people had intended to leave the power to the federal government, to which they had meant to deny it. Small wonder then that John C. Calhoun and Henry Clay did not understand the constitutionalism of James Madison. To some Virginia Republicans, Madison's odd constitutional course as president came as no surprise. In 1808, John Taylor of Caroline, John Randolph of Roanoke, and other disaffected Republicans who thought Jefferson had strayed from Republican principles and that Madison was worse, lit upon James Monroe as their standard bearer. We need a man of principle to oppose the Machiavellians in power. They said, to contrast themselves to the seemingly nationalist Madison and his supporters, these men called themselves. Old Republicans. It was a group that former President Thomas Jefferson himself sometimes supported. For example, as historians rarely note, Jefferson opposed Madison's bank bill. Most old Republicans were in the South, but Republicans in other parts of the country sometimes joined forces with the old Republicans to oppose Madison. Many of them, in fact, opposed Madison's bank, and as soon as it was adopted, some states passed measures intended to exclude it from their territory. Ohio was a notorious example. A more prominent one, by the vagaries of fate, was Maryland. Maryland decided that it would keep the Bank of the United States from opening a branch in its territory by imposing a stiff fee on it. The 1818 Maryland banking law said that any bank established without authority from the state must issue only notes of certain denominations and then only printed on stamped paper, unless the bank chose to pay an annual fee of fifteen thousand dollars. The Baltimore branch of the Bank of the United States failed to comply with these requirements, and so Maryland sued its cashier, branch manager James William McCulloch. The main issue presented to the Supreme Court in the case of McCulloch v. Maryland was the constitutionality of the Maryland law. Lurking behind that was the question of whether the Bank of the United States had been constitutionally chartered by Congress. Everyone recognized the import of the case. According to Justice Joseph Story, when oral arguments were held. The hall was full almost to suffocation, and many went away for want of room. Spectators got their money's worth as the issues were debated with great skill by Daniel Webster, the 19th century's leading Supreme Court advocate, and William Pinckney on behalf of the Bank of the United States, and by Maryland Attorney General Luther Martin, who had been a prominent Philadelphia Convention delegate 32 years earlier for his state. Webster reiterated Alexander Hamilton's 1791 constitutional justification of the first bank bill, Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, does not provide an exhaustive list of congressional powers, but only a suggestive one. 
As several of the powers listed in Section 8 relate to the economy, Congress can be understood to have a general supervisory power over the economy. Congress might well decide that chartering a bank was useful in superintending the economy. Because the Constitution does not expressly prohibit Congress from chartering a bank, Congress is free to do so. Webster reasoned that nearly 30 years' unbroken acceptance of the constitutionality of such legislation had settled the question. Marshall, in his opinion for a unanimous Supreme Court, wrote that Maryland had argued that the Constitution had been ratified by the states for express, limited purposes, and not only had Congress's chartering a bank not been among those purposes, but the Tenth Amendment had been added to the Constitution to underscore that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. However, Marshall rejected this notion. He wrote that while the Articles of Confederation had specified that Congress had only the powers it was expressly delegated, the Constitution included no such language, so no such principle applied to it. This was an extraordinary argument, given that Marshall himself and other Federalists like Charles Pinckney, James Wilson, William Cushing, Edmund Randolph, and George Nicholas had assured their ratification convention colleagues that this very principle of limited federal power in Randolph's words, that the federal government would have only the powers it was expressly delegated, was implicit in the unamended Constitution even before the Tenth Amendment was adopted. Being right, however, does not guarantee a victory in court, as anyone who has been so unfortunate as to find himself before a judge can attest. In his opinion for the court, Marshall corrected Martin's interpretation of the Constitution. It had not been created by the states, he insisted, but by one American people— Martin, said Marshall, simply did not understand the framers' intent. The American people, who created the Constitution, Marshall went on, had given the federal government certain powers, and the federal government must be supreme within its sphere, both as a logical matter and as the supremacy clause of Article VI expressly states. Thus, when Congress exercised one of its constitutional powers, a state could not interfere with it. Was chartering a bank among Congress's constitutional powers? At this point, Marshall, like Webster, borrowed from Hamilton. The proper ends of congressional legislation are hinted at by the enumerated powers in Article I, Section 8. The means Congress adopts to achieve those ends, including management of the national economy, must be those that are necessary in the Webster-Hamilton sense of being useful, and the limitations on congressional discretion listed in the Constitution for example, that Congress may not adopt an ex post facto law, are the only binding ones there are. From the grave, the practically defunct Federalist Party and its late chieftain, Alexander Hamilton, had had their way. Despite its defeat in 1787, the Philadelphia Convention's monarchist nationalist coalition had been handed an epochal victory in 1819. Little did it matter that Marshall's interpretation, if it may be called that, set the Tenth Amendment at naught, still less that it contradicted what the Federalists of 1787 to 1791, including, at least by implication, young John Marshall, had promised. As the Supreme Court had the final word in the matter, the clear contradiction between the process used to ratify the Constitution, its consideration by each of the sovereign states, and ratification by each of them separately, on behalf of itself and only itself, and Marshall's assertion that one American people had adopted the Constitution, also was not susceptible to correction. The Constitution was going to be read by the Supreme Court as a product of one American people, and the powers it gave the Congress were going to be the discretionary powers of a national legislature, not the enumerated powers of a federal legislature.
In short, the Philadelphia Convention, the ratification process, the Tenth Amendment, and the political defeat of the Federalist Party, so thorough that the party ceased to exist, were all undone by the Marshall Court. Almost as an afterthought, Marshall wrote in McCulloch that Maryland could not tax the Bank of the United States. In creating a federal government, surely the American people had not intended that its powers could be overridden by an individual state government. The power to tax is the power to destroy. And so the state of Maryland, which could not thwart federal measures, had no power to tax the bank. Critics soon pointed out that Marshall's argument proved too much. If the people had created the federal government, whose instrumentalities a state therefore could not destroy, they had also created the state governments. So could the federal government interfere with them? The argument applied either way, logically, but not in the mind of John Marshall. Like Thomas Hutchinson, the last royal governor of Massachusetts, Marshall insisted that there must be an indivisible sovereign in every community, and that meant that all conflicts between states and the federal government must be decided in favor of the federal government. The revolution had substituted the federal government for the crown, as Marshall read things, and the states were still subordinate. Marshall lamented in his correspondence that the bank decision drew down a powerful storm of criticism. When the Richmond Inquirer ran a series of anti-McCulloch editorials, first by a Virginia appellate court judge, then by the Court of Appeals chief judge himself, Marshall, like historians since him, accused his critics of preferring the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution, the same disingenuous argument he had used against Luther Martin. Seemingly, everyone had something to say about the decision. James Madison, for one, who had justified the Second Bank of the United States on far different, though equally pernicious, constitutional grounds, wrote of McCulloch that if people had known in 1788 that the Constitution would be read as giving Congress such extensive discretionary powers, Virginia would never have ratified it. He was, as we have seen, absolutely right about that. George Nicholas and Edmund Randolph had assured the Richmond Convention that Virginia was to be one of 13 parties to the Constitution, not somehow an organic part of one American people. Thomas Jefferson, for his part, found Marshall's decision highly vexing. Jefferson had long regarded Marshall as the greatest threat to federal republicanism, and he said that despite federalism's decisive defeats at the polls, we find the judiciary on every occasion still driving us into consolidation. To Jefferson's mind, the branches of the federal government were coordinate and independent. The judiciary was not the final arbiter. That status belonged to the sovereign people of each state. The year after McCulloch was decided, Jefferson wrote, The judiciary of the United States is the subtle core of sappers and miners constantly working underground to undermine the foundations of our confederated republic. They are construing our Constitution from a coordination of a general and special government to a general and supreme one alone. Jefferson's guiding principle was to favor local government, but it was an argument he was losing. The failure of the Chase impeachment had demonstrated to the judges that they could do as they liked, and they were. Portrait of a Justice John Marshall, 1755-1835, the great Chief Justice, was the fourth Chief Justice of the United States. Before accepting that post, he had been a Federalist delegate to the Richmond Ratification Convention, a congressman, a diplomat, and Secretary of State. His handiwork as Chief Justice included writing the defeated, and by the end of his tenure defunct, Federalist Party's constitutional views into American constitutional law, in cases such as Fletcher v. Peck, McCulloch v. Maryland, and Gibbons v. Ogden. More than any other man, 
Marshall was responsible for converting the Nationalists' defeat in the Philadelphia Convention into a long-run total victory. Legal Latinisms Ex post facto law, a law passed after the commission of an act to change the act's legal consequences. Generally, the term refers to retroactive criminalization or heightening of a criminal penalty. Madison's Flip-Flops In 1791, James Madison said Alexander Hamilton's proposed national bank was unconstitutional. But in 1816, Madison asked Congress to charter one. The Wolf by the Ear Marshall's opinion in McCulloch v. Maryland, granting Congress powers limited only by its own will, provoked a fiery response, in part because it came as Congress was racked by a dispute over slavery in the territory of Missouri. Missouri, a section of the Louisiana Purchase, applied for admission to the Union in 1819. The application included a draft state constitution, which provided that slavery should continue in the territory. To the surprise of the political class generally, a New York Republican congressman named James Talmadge, Jr. proposed that Congress amend the Missouri Bill to phase slavery out of existence in the new state. His proposal would have stopped importation of slaves into Missouri, and it would have freed all slaves born after Missouri's admission to the Union as soon as they reached age 25. The Missouri crisis, which would divide Congress for two years, had begun. To a Republican congressman of his acquaintance, former President Jefferson wrote that the Missouri dispute had struck him like a firebell in the night, filling him with terror. I considered it at once as the knell of the Union. He lamented that a geographical line had been established, with proponents of one principle on one side and advocates of a contrary one on the other. Could anything be done to end this division? Taking a metaphor from an ancient Greek proverb, he said, We have the wolf by the ear, and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is in one scale, and self-preservation in the other. To understand Jefferson's metaphor, we need to know two things— First, that so far as late 18th-century philosophers of whom Jefferson was enamored were concerned, self-preservation was the highest goal of society. Only it could outweigh justice. Second, Jefferson's notion that ending slavery would mean loosing a ravenous wolf reflected his fear that emancipation would lead to race war. He had expressed this fear as early as the 1780s. It gained added strength from the memory of the Haitian Revolution of 1791 to 1804, which had resulted in the death or exile of every white person from Haiti. Jefferson expected American emancipation to have similar results in the South. Jefferson opposed Talmadge's Missouri proposals on several grounds. First, he, like James Madison and others, believed that the slaves, and certainly the slaveholders in his own state of Virginia, would be better off if slavery were diffused across the whole continent instead of confined to the Southeast. Second, he disliked Talmadge's plan because it contradicted his conception of the Union. Perhaps Congress could exclude slavery from the territory of Missouri, but it could not impose conditions on the territory that would remain binding once it became a state. At that point, Missouri would have attained equal footing with the other states, just as the Northwest Ordinance had provided regarding the former Trans-Ohio-Virginia Territory we now call the Midwest, and would be free, as other states were free, to make its own policy regarding slavery. If a northern majority in Congress could impose its will on a state despite that state's clear rights, what was to prevent the Yankees in Congress from doing the same to the older southern states? The Dartmouth Review The year 1819 also saw Marshall's Supreme Court issue another momentous decision. This one, in the case of Dartmouth College v. Woodward, 
calls to mind his ledger domain in Fletcher v. Peck nearly a decade before. Dartmouth College, like Harvard, Princeton, Columbia, and other colonial colleges, operated under a royal charter as a charitable institution. It had been given its charter in order to perform the public service of educating New Hampshire youth, mainly, like Yale, William and Mary, and other colleges, for the ministry, and to educate Indians. With the Revolution of 1776, Dartmouth found itself insulated from virtually any outside influence. When the Jeffersonian Revolution of 1800 finally worked itself out in the state politics of New Hampshire, Republicans saw Dartmouth College as ripe for reorganization. No longer, said the Jeffersonian Republicans ascendant in that state, should their state college be a bastion of privilege, a Federalist Party enclave untouchable by the new legislative majority. Therefore, the state legislature adopted legislation reorganizing Dartmouth. Dartmouth College, in response, claimed the protection of the Contracts Clause of Article I, Section 10 of the Constitution for the terms of its original charter. The case went to the Supreme Court, and Chief Justice Marshall blithely accepted the college's argument that its charter amounted to a contract, the obligation of which could not be impaired by state legislation. The Contracts Clause, however, had never been meant to cover college charters, and presumably a college chartered for the public's purposes could have its charter amended by the public. As so often before, Marshall might have been wrong, but his decision had lasting significance. It explains why Harvard, Yale, Penn, Dartmouth, Columbia, and Princeton, colleges established during colonial times and supported during that era with public money, came to be private in the early 19th century. Just as Fletcher was calculated to protect the interests of land speculators, such as Chief Justice Marshall, so the case of Dartmouth College benefited the old Federalist elites who wanted to shield their colleges from Republican legislatures. Jefferson and the Republicans were, naturally, outraged, and the decision was unpopular, but there was no appeal from the Supreme Court. The Great Llama of the Mountains versus Marshall In 1821, the Supreme Court decided the case of Cohen's versus Virginia. The issue at hand was the effect of the Eleventh Amendment. The Supreme Court, predictably, ruled that the Eleventh Amendment banned only the initiation of suits against states in federal court, and as this suit was only being appealed to federal court against a state, the Eleventh Amendment did not apply. Here, once again, we see that Marshall consistently read limitations on federal power as narrowly as possible. The Eleventh Amendment plainly does not have the limitations Marshall put upon it. It was meant to limit the federal courts to the role specified for them in Article Three. If Marshall had read the amendment that way, he would have found Section 25 of the Judiciary Act of 1789, which gave the Supreme Court jurisdiction over certain appeals from state Supreme Courts, unconstitutional. Interestingly, in an 1824 case, Osborne v. Bank of the United States, Marshall held that while the Eleventh Amendment banned the initiation of suits against states in federal courts, it did not protect employees of states from being sued in federal court for implementing state policies. With Cohen's and Osborne, he had given the Eleventh Amendment as narrow a reading as possible. This was consistent with his general pattern of hostility toward limitations on federal power. Marshall derisively called Jefferson the Great Llama of the Mountains, but Jefferson recognized that the Supreme Court had become a threat to America's constitutional government. He worried that the Court had eliminated all checks on its power by misreading the clear meanings of Article Three and the Eleventh Amendment. Even an unbroken string of Republican electoral victories had not changed the direction of the court. In fact, these victories seemed to make Marshall more determined to write Hamiltonian principles into legal precedent. Jefferson and Marshall were separated by differences over the very nature of law. 
For Jefferson, law was the framework of rules by which the people agreed to be governed. A judge's role was simply to apply the clear meaning and original understanding of the Constitution or other legal document. But Marshall and his allies, like Justice Joseph Story, believed that law required judges who could see beyond the written law to the natural law that was superior to it. Jefferson's vision was republican. Marshall's was aristocratic or clerical. As Justice Iredell pointed out in Calder v. Bull, no two men agreed about the particulars of the natural law. Instead, they tended to use natural law as a justification for legislating their own policy preferences. It is unsurprising, then, that Marshall and Story's natural law always led to a pro-federalist outcome. Perhaps surprisingly, Marshall's vision of judging, the federalist vision, continues to dominate lawyers and judges thinking about the judicial role even today. Marshall finds the elastic in the Commerce Clause. One of the next great cases to come before the court was Gibbons v. Ogden, 1824. Gibbons concerned the most famous inventor of the age, Robert Fulton, who was widely credited with inventing the steamship. It would be hard to exaggerate the significance of his invention, which revolutionized trade within the United States. The question was, what reward should the inventor receive? The New York legislature had granted Fulton and his business partner, prominent Republican politician and diplomat Robert Livingston, a 30-year monopoly of navigation of all the waters within the jurisdiction of that state with boats moved by fire and steam. The issue, Marshall decided, was whether Congress's Commerce Clause power, the Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes, belonged only to it, or whether states could also regulate commerce, as in excluding certain ships from state waters. Before he turned to that, however, Marshall had to define commerce. Neutral readers of his opinion would have found much in his Gibbons definition of commerce to remind them of his Dartmouth College definition of contract and his McCulloch definition of necessary. It turned out that the interstate commerce that Congress was empowered by the Commerce Clause to regulate included not only what my dictionary defines as commercial, that is, large-scale exchange or buying and selling involving transportation, but also transportation undertaken for transportation's sake. In support of his definition, Marshall pointed to the long-standing habit of Congress to adopt laws affecting interstate navigation. The fact that Congress had done so over a long period of time proved that it had a constitutional power to do so, he said. Recall that he had made a similar argument about the constitutionality of the Second Bank of the United States in McCulloch v. Maryland, and contrast Thomas Jefferson's statement at the outset of the Revolution, that no matter how long the British oppressed the colonists, they would never acquire a right to oppress them by having done it repeatedly. Thus, the transportation monopoly at issue in Gibbons was commerce, said the court, and therefore Congress could regulate it. This odd definition, like those in McCulloch and Dartmouth College, would have enormous ramifications down the road. In time, Congress would claim, and the Supreme Court would agree, that it could regulate virtually anything on the ground that it even remotely affected interstate commerce. Marshall almost certainly would have welcomed that development. But back to the steamboat monopoly. Having defined commerce in such a way as to include mere interstate transportation, Marshall had to decide whether Congress's power to regulate it was infringed by a New York statute affecting it. He decided that it was, that is, that New York's grant of a monopoly of steamboat transportation to Livingston and Fulton ran afoul of the Commerce Clause. How could that be? Surely New York's legislation did not annul the congressional power to regulate interstate commerce or even limit it. Marshall avoided saying that Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce was exclusive, 
that the Article I, Section 8 grant negated state power to act in that area. But Marshall did assert that Thomas Gibbons, operating a competing ferry service licensed by Congress in 1793, could not be barred from New York waters under the terms of the Commerce Clause. Marshall nullifies the Declaration of Independence. In 1831 and 1832, Marshall issued a pair of opinions, in the cases of Cherokee Nation versus Georgia and Worcester versus Georgia, that had even deeper ramifications. Marshall famously sided with the Cherokee against the state of Georgia by saying that the Indians' treaty rights must be respected by the state. In response, President Andrew Jackson is supposed to have said, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Marshall's decisions in these cases are famous, but what is never noted is the significance of his reasoning. Marshall went on at great length about the Indian society in North America before the white man's arrival. The colonists had conquered them and taken their land, he said. Their moral right had given way before the colonists' martial might. Sadly, they possessed only a slight remnant of their original empire. Marshall, in this analysis, denied the entire Jeffersonian theory of American colonial history that underlay a summary view of the rights of British America and, through it, the Declaration of Independence. If the Indians in North America were not isolated bands of migratory Stone Age people, but settled civilizations, then, as Sir William Blackstone wrote in his Commentaries on the Laws of England, their law remained in effect until the king replaced it, and so the colonists did not have all the rights of Englishmen when they first arrived here. This meant that the Declaration of Independence was based on an inaccurate account of the colony's relationship to the king, who had not had to concede any of the rights of Englishmen to the colonists. From Marshall's point of view, a rejection of the Jeffersonian version of the past buttressed opinions like the one in Dartmouth College, in which a royal charter took precedence, as the rights of the Indians took precedence, over state legislation. It also might be said to have justified Marshall in reasoning from general legal theories instead of directly from the Constitution and the constitutional understanding of the state ratification conventions. State sovereignty? Never heard of it. The logic of Marshall's legal thinking nearly led to war in the early 1830s when it was applied to the issue of tariffs. In 1828, Congress had passed, and President John Quincy Adams had signed into law, the Tariff of Abominations, which raised the standard tariff rate to 50%. At a time when much of America was agricultural and many goods were only available from abroad, a 50% tax on all imports struck many as outrageous. The South Carolina legislature responded by issuing its exposition and protest, in which it went on record saying that each state had the right to interpose to prevent the enforcement of federal policy within its borders if the federal government adopted a policy that was unconstitutional and dangerous. Matters worsened during the nullification crisis of 1832 to 1833. South Carolina responded to the tariff of 1832 by electing a popular convention which nullified the tariff. President Andrew Jackson prepared to invade South Carolina. South Carolina's government and private citizens throughout the state prepared the militia to resist. Virginia's governor secretly planned to take South Carolina's side in case Jackson tried to march through Virginia to get at the Palmetto State. And Jackson issued a nullification proclamation, denying the constitutionality of both nullification and secession. Nullification, he insisted, was treason. Repeating Marshall's arguments from McCulloch versus Maryland, Jackson argued that the United States had been created by one American people, not by separate states. Just as Jefferson had expected, the one thing that the Supreme Court and the executive could agree on was that federal power was supreme. 
Senator Henry Clay stepped in to arrange a compromise. Tariffs were reduced slowly. Senator John C. Calhoun of South Carolina would not be hanged for treason for supporting his state. Jackson would not repent. The South Carolina Convention met again, repealed the nullification ordinance, nullified the statute empowering Jackson to put down nullification by force, and declared victory. Marshall finally gets one right. This was the context of Marshall's last significant constitutional decision, Barron v. Baltimore, 1833. The city of Baltimore, Maryland, had, in the course of making city improvements, altered the flow of water into the Chesapeake Bay, which in turn led to a buildup of silt around the wharf of John Barron. Barron said the value of his wharf had been so damaged that it amounted to a government seizure of his property, for which he ought to be compensated by the city under the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Marshall described the issue as one of great importance, but not of much difficulty. The Fifth Amendment, like the rest of the Bill of Rights, had been adopted as a limitation on the federal government alone. The movement to affix amendments to the Constitution arose out of fears that the new government was too powerful, and the amendment's purpose was to hedge that power. Thus, if Barron wanted Baltimore to be forced to compensate him for its injury to his property, he would have to seek his remedy in a state, not a federal court. In the end, then, Marshall decided a constitutional case correctly. This outcome calls to mind the old saying about the stopped clock. A Bill of Rights to Protect the Sovereign States Even John Marshall conceded, in Barron v. Baltimore, 1833, that the Bill of Rights did not affect the powers of the states, but only those of the federal government.